Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. You rise faster together. More often than not, uh, the people that you are working shoulder to shoulder with, those are the people that are gonna be there 10 years from now. If anyone's going to be there 10 years from now, it's gonna be those people. Uh, Issa Rae said, you network across, not up. So if you're able to find the people that are in your region, that are already driven, then you're halfway home. But you gotta find people that are, that are, that have heart and that have real drive and are serious about this shit. Hot breath. What's goody, Hot Breath-averse? Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers, and we are on a mission here at Hot Breath to cultivate the next generation of great comics. And part of how we do that in addition to our daily writing clubs on Facebook, in addition to our Hot Breath Pro Comedian Incubator community, we do weekly interviews with today's great comics to learn from them and how they became great. So if you're a comedy fan or a comedian, we've got something for both of you here at the Hot Breath Averse. And our guest today is actually a guest we had back in episode number 63 we are now in the 300s. We have interviewed over 300 comedians on this show. So if this is your first time tuning in, we have plenty for you to catch up and learn from, whether it's on our audio podcast or our YouTube channel. So welcome to the Hot breath verse And let's get into it with today's guest, the one and only. Let's do it, as there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath, with Roy Wood Jr. Yeah, what's up, man? How you been? I've been good, man. It's good to reconnect with you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to get into viewer questions, but something that stuck out to me from our last interview when I went back to listen to it was just you really making sure you really emphasize like collaboration in comedy and and wanting to like encourage comics to help each other in their journeys and i think you doing this is an example of that but the entire basically ethos of what we're doing here is creating a supportive community of comics and i'm curious to know why why is that so important to you that comics should be helping each other instead of like competing because it's more than one tv channel it's not 1983 where everybody's fighting for the same two sitcom slots. Um, you you rise faster together. I don't want to get into all the African proverb, go together, go further, whatever. We've heard that said a million times, but more often than not, uh, the people that you are working shoulder to shoulder with, those are the people that are going to be there 10 years from now. If anyone's going to be there 10 years from now, it's going to be those people. And so you're, it's easier to collaborate. Like uh, Issa Rae said, you network across, not up. So if you're able to find the people that are in your region that are already driven, then you're halfway home. But you got to find people that are that are, that have heart and that have real drive and are serious about this shit because if you don't, then you're going to end up pulling more of the workload mm -hmm. and that's just gonna make you bitter. And when I say collaboration, it's not just comedy. This is 
Find the guy with the camera that wants to direct. Find the person that does graphic design that's looking for things to create. Like these are all people within the ecosystem. And, you know, I think that it's very, very important. Find the hungry actor that just needs something for their reel. Well, now you got a sketch person that you could cast. So I just think it's about finding the pockets of the internet where driven people exist, where you are, and fucking reaching out. Like this competitiveness of, I gotta be the king of the fucking comedy and I did it all alone. You'll get no extra fucking bonus points for doing it alone. And your fucking money's the same, whether you got a team or not. If you're an executive producer, it's not going to change your check if there's another executive producer on the project with you. The network just got to pay more money out. Comedy is a lonely journey. Like, how were you? How did you deal with that coming up in your own comedy hustle? Like the lonely times. How were you able to overcome those? I think it's lonely in the sense of social, in terms of the social structure of the job. You have friends that don't understand, you have family that doesn't understand, and then they're going to give you stupid solutions to your problems. Like, have you tried reaching out to Seth Meyers? Maybe he'll put you just like, that's how you get jobs. It's just fucking emailing show hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't have to be lonely on the job side. If you can find other comedians to, even if it's just writing and bouncing jokes off of each other find three comics that you aren't similar to stylistically and that way you know nobody's gonna steal the fucking joke and you'd be surprised how many tags and stuff you can have from just a little two-hour chill session of just bouncing jokes off of one another um for me you know it was a lot of playstation that's how i dealt uh but you know my come up was in the south so my first nine years i was a road comedian so Mm -hmm. every week i was working with a different comic and most of the guys i started open mic with once we started featuring i never saw them again because you just like that open mic like those first couple of years of open mic and being a local that's like boot camp and then you know as a road comic i can't speak to the coast or chicago or what that journey is like in those first five years but you know, down south in the Midwest, you're just a fucking nomad. So one week you might be opening for an A-list act. The next week you're opening for somebody that's been doing it 30 years. They're burnt out. They're an alcoholic and they don't give a fuck about you. So it's not a lot of collaboration happening Mm -hmm. on those particular weekends. But I just think that it's important to know that what you're doing, you're not alone in doing it and just finding other people. That's the cool thing about social media. You know, we didn't have that when I started in 98. We had a message board. There were two things. We had a website. There was a website called comedy.com and they had a message board. And then Google had a message board called alt.comedy.standup. And it was just message threads. It was basically OG Reddit, but strictly for standup comedy moderated by stand-up comedians and so that was that was how we kept in touch with each other and just talk shit about the road and get just you know find your tribe as they say well yeah our facebook group just in quarantine has grown to over like two thousand comics all around the world it's it's been it's been amazing and to see that the the roots of collaboration and comedy on the internet like you just referenced to see what's possible with it now that's beautiful yeah yeah it's really dope it's been really dope so I, I definitely want to get people were super excited about you coming on the show. And I definitely want to make sure we get to some comic questions here. So um, 
the first one up here, we have William Lumbombard asking, uh, what is your joke writing process start to finish, and where do you get your inspiration from? Uh, second question first. I'm inspired by things that annoy me, no matter how mundane. Things that annoy me and things that people are already arguing and passionate about. So if I can speak emphatically about something and make you feel it's as important to you, it should be as important to you as it is to me, then you can add stakes to something mundane. A great example of that would be the joke that I did about um, having to pay for an extra sauce. It was a runner in my first special father figure where it really does annoy me that you have to pay for an extra sauce when you order chicken nuggets. And you just go on a journey about that. So at the root of that is annoyance. And from that, you know, I try to build stakes. Um, if I find things that people are already arguing about, if I can find a third side to the argument that no one had considered or had really talked about, then I have a good place to mine material and find new perspectives on the issue that everybody's already familiar with. And I think that's why I enjoy talking about issues around the world more than talking about myself, because if I'm talking about things that you already have an opinion on, I already have your attention. So now it's just a matter of which way do I want to go now that I have your attention. And so that became, that's probably the biggest part of the process, especially when I have writer's block. Like if I have writer's block, um, I watch things that either annoy me or bore me. I, mm. Generally speaking, I try to watch 30 minutes to an hour a week of television. I try to consume some form of media for an hour every week of stuff that I normally wouldn't fuck with. So one month it might be magazine. So I'll just read Guns and Ammo and then a Southern Living and then, uh, I don't know, some computer tech magazine. Then I'll read Cosmo Kids. So just whatever the fuck. Just to see what the fuck else is going on in the world. And more often than not, I find that stuff so boring and so mundane and so purposeless a lot of the times that from that I'm able to find a premise. You know, like, like reading the guns and ammo led to a bit about, you know, how much shit is too much shit to have on your gun? And it's, all right, gun ownership. It's a joke about gun ownership, but then it's a joke about not having the scope or the laser dot and then the extra clip and then the shoulder stock. And then the, like, there's just so much extra shit you can put. And so that's a joke about accessorizing. And so, then you start trying to par parallel a gun to something that, well, what's something that women love to over accessorize or put too much razzle dazzle on? And so then that sends you on a journey through the women's cosmetics office section of a department store or reading a women's magazine to get ideas and inspiration. I think it's important also uh, to research your topics to be as knowledgeable as, to as possible about the topic. If you have an idea about blank, you should go read about it. You should go watch just uh, literally an hour a week, man. If you just research that shit 15 minutes a day, that's an hour by the end of the week. And so that will give you more perspectives on the issue. 
and more angles to, you know, to comment the topic on. But, you know, in terms of the writing process, that's probably where I, that's, that's kind of where the inception of most things comes from. If I'm annoyed by it and most people are already arguing about it, then I bet you I can try and find something funny in there. And then from there, it's just putting it on stage and wash, rinse, repeat. You write what you think is funny. You go on stage, you say it, you come home, you listen to the audio. Where did you say too many words? All right, cut those words out. Is it funnier when you put this punchline ahead of this punchline? Well, swap the order this night. And I, you know, people talk about Louis C.K. and how he would open with his closer. And so that the rest of his comedy set is a declining action, forcing him to overperform the subsequent jokes, which boost those jokes and then reshuffling the order of his set. But I think you could take that concept and still apply within an actual joke itself. Put the funniest part up front if it works sequentially and the logic still tracks. And then that'll force you to find other stuff. And then, you know, after like three, four months of running a bit regularly, when I say regularly, I mean like every week, somewhere at the end of that, you know what the form of the joke is going to be. And then from there, you can just start working through the ordering of the joke. All right, I know what all the funny parts are. Now, what order do I want to tell them in? And then boom, that joke is done. And then you do the next joke and the next joke and the next joke. And you, I go through that whole process. And then when I'm putting together an hour set, then it's about figuring out the sequencing because some jokes work better behind other jokes, you know? Yeah, when we had Jeff Foxworthy on here and he talked about his hour sets, he breaks down into specific like categories or topics. Will you try to chunk your material into specific like topics like that? Yeah, it depends. Like if I have a callback or something that I'm trying to yo-yo back to, then, you know, maybe so. Um, you know, there's a there's a long run that I'm working on now. Um but this is a perfect example of research. So the the basic gist of the joke is just in how how unsung white actors are in black struggle movies. And how to have a good black to have an effective black movie that tells a painful story. For you to really feel pain, you need a white actor on screen that is just fucking being t- horrible. You need a horrible, vile motherfucker to really tell this story the right way. And so then you go through examples of movies where white people went above and beyond to be terrible and you treat them like unsung heroes. And that's the juxtaposition Mm -hmm. of that joke. But that joke is also to a bigger narrative about the perception of black struggle. And then from there, I'm going into the relationship between black people and Afro-Brits and black people and Caribbeans and black people and native Africans and the whole black diaspora. But I'm starting from that place of that joke to establish the world because the way we perceive black pain is through the eyes of American movies. So it's how American movies how black American pain is put in one place, but we don't know as much, or how is black pain portrayed for Afro-Brits, for Caribbeans, for Native Africans. So it's an encompassing chunk about how black people are perceived based on the media that you consume about them that nine times out of 10, they're not even in charge of. So that's the bigger 15 minutes, 
But right now, all I got is that six minute chunk about white people in those movies and white savior movies and stuff like that. And it's a bit that I have to work because the further we get away from particular movies, the less people remember them. So I have to be able to do this. This joke was kind of percolating after Green Book, right? And the whole Green Book Moonlight controversy. But now if I say Green Book, you kind of got to squint for a second to remember the movie and remember the plot. So now I have to decide whether to drop Green Book or add three minutes of material where I recap what the fuck happened in Green Book if you didn't see it. And so that has to be funny, Mm -hmm. but not be too much of a digression off of a cliff. If you know what I'm saying, like the same thing with like Shape of Water and how that was essentially a white savior movie, like that, you know, only it was a fish nigga. Like that was the punchline that I used to use was this white lady saved a fish nigga. <laughs> and that, but as we got further and further away from Shape of Water, it's too, it's too long ago, you know? So it's about creating a joke that captures the tone of the times, but not, it's like, it's, you have to joke about the climate and not the weather. Mm. If that makes sense. And so, oh, yeah. It's a joke that started on a speci- that's based on a specific incident or a specific film, but now we need to look at the totality of black film and black cinema, which means going all the way back to the fucking nineties. And when I have time, I mean, I don't always watch a whole film, but if I'm doing jokes about movies, doesn't hurt to watch the movie again, or just watch it. The- like there's this. Um, is it called Cine Clips or Movie Clips? There's a YouTube channel that just has like the 10 or 11 best moments from a film, just all in a playlist, multiple movies. So even if you've never seen the movie, you can watch multiple, you know, fucking whatever's about a particular film. And that will help because mm-hmm. it'll re- it'll spark something. And then you'll see two, three things in- that you didn't think connect. And then you go, oh, shit, that fucking connects. So now you're doing this whole run about white savior movies and how the green book was this white savior movie where this white person was driving around a person of color and blah, 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 blah. And then you start looking at the rest of the landscape of interracial of any film with interracial leads. Right. And you go, what else can I compare the green book to? And it took a minute to kind of go through the catalog of interracial starring films and, you know, the lethal weapons and the fucking trading places and the 48 hours and shit like that. Right. And then I settle on, Oh shit. If you look at the end of the first, the first fast and furious movie, fast and furious is a white savior film. (laughs) Paul Walker gave a person of color the keys to his car so he could get away from the cops. He fucking said, it like, and so then it's about <laughs> taking that scene in the Fast and wow. Furious, and if I want, I might do this as a sketch, but just putting like Negro spiritual music under it, yeah, <laughs> and treating it like it, it's no different than the Green Book in that regard. It's the white person helping this uh, this fucking Mexican German whatever Vin Diesel is looking criminal, <laughs> like that type of. You know, that that type of stuff, you know, um, 
it's just exploring, you know, the the bit about the national anthem and how black people don't write. This is a good example of just researching, right? So I had a bit in my first special about how black people don't, um, fuck, I just lost my train of thought. Black people don't, the, the whole bit was about the national anthem and black people should kneel, black people should kneel for the anthem. Well, black people have never been patriotic, case in point. No black person has ever written a patriotic song. We do covers, but we don't write original songs about America. So then you start going through all of these hit songs, and I started noticing the consistent theme was, oh shit, black people rap about specific cities. They don't talk about, they don't talk about America. They talk about pockets of America where they can have a good time. And so you had Ray Charles George on my mind, you had Will Smith, um, you know, Miami, you had Welcome to Atlanta by Jermaine Dupree and Ludacris. And then it came to Living in America by James Brown. And it feels like a song about America. But then as I'm looking at the lyrics at the end of the song, he starts naming specific cities. <laughs> and so the punchline in that joke was that he tricks white people into thinking the song was about America. But at the end of the song, it's a secret message to black people letting them know here are the 10 cities where you can live. And so that I don't get, I don't get to that punchline without actually going and researching where I could have just left it at the generality of just black people don't talk about America. We ain't written none of them songs. Yeah. Anyway, next joke. If you can support your thesis with research, then you are a much better journalist, you know, you're a much better scientist. But how, mu how much yeah, research, like how many songs do you have to explore before you pick like the best three? Like what, what would you say is like your average between how many ideas I have versus actually make it to the final like special? Wait, repeat that one more time. That kind of cut out a little bit on me. So like how many, how much research goes into it? Like you pick those songs, but how many songs do you have to explore before you pick the ones that are worth keeping? You have to pick the ones that are popular, and then you also have to figure out where people are going to push back on your thesis, because we live in an argumentative and opinionated culture now. So I have to already know what you're going to say about what I'm saying and have something prepared for that, because everything, you know, the first thing anyone, and I threw this around with a couple of friends, you know, I bounce theories off of other comedians as well. Mm-hmm. And hey, man, what do you think about this bit? Black people don't write patriotic songs. We talk about cities. Da 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 da. da. Yeah, but what about living in America? That's patriotic. And I go, yeah, but James Brown didn't write that. Yeah, but no, nobody know that. They just know that he did it, so it's his song. No one cares about songwriting. I go, that's a fair point. So now I have to figure out a way to still uphold my thesis while inserting living in America. And thank God, the lyrics saved you know saved that bit, but. You know, there's, there's sometimes so you'll do research and you won't get shit. I mean, we're just talking about the bits that are kept. We're not talking about the ones that that get dropped and don't and they get stuck in mud that don't necessarily go from here to here. You know, because mm -hmm. you can have it, and it's 
like like there's a there's a bit that I'm trying to work about mass shootings. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do it anymore because of what Chappelle did with his SNL monologue regarding how uh, COVID, how the pandemic curbed mass shootings. But, you know, the joke worked a lot better. This is terrible to say, but the joke worked a lot better when mass shootings were more of a regular occurrence in our country because they were at the forefront of people's minds. Mm -hmm. But now they aren't. We still know about mass shootings, but they're not as publicized because we were in an election year and then you got all the pandemic shit and it's only 30 minutes in a newscast. So that joke, which I thought was climate because there were so many mass shootings happening over the past five to 10 years, right? There was a good two or three a year, enough to where I could comfortably walk on stage and say mass shooting and know that people would be with me immediately where now that was then the climate has changed, you know, maybe it'll be different, you know, once the, once the fucking uh, vaccine hits or whatever. But I think for the most part, that's a bit that I'm going to have to figure out a way to retool to get back into it, you know? And, and I think it's for where that joke is right now, it's a long walk to make a point that I'm not even sure is worth even making anymore, just in terms of how the bit, the bit as a whole is about why racial profiling is good. And you start with that juxtaposition up front and then you work your way back to justify it and how you have, oh, this is another thing. It also ties in all the Karen shit and just white people calling the police on anybody looking suspicious. And so the basic premise that I'm trying to drive towards is just about how if you're going to profile someone, profile, if you want to stop mass shooting, start profiling the people who have these fucked up haircuts. Eight out of 10 mass shooters have a fucked up haircut. Mm -hmm. So... And when mass shootings happen, the first thing we do is talk to his parents and ask them, why didn't they stop it? Don't talk to his parents. Talk to the barber. The barber knew <laughs> the barber is the one. And and so the whole bit is just about blaming mass shootings on barbers. Gotcha. Perfectly fine bit pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. Perfectly fine. But that's right now that joke feels like a walk. So it'll get sent down to AAA and maybe we'll strip it for parts and it'll fit into something else. But it's not a bit like if I started going back on stage tomorrow and building my hour, I don't think I would, I don't think I would do that bit. The part of the, and so, and so here's where shit gets fucked up, right? So because I lose that part of the bit, the other part of the mass shooting bit that is actually relevant and pertinent and is climate isn't strong enough because the barber shit was the fucking mm at the end. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because the whole front half of the bit is about, so without doing the bit, essentially, so my child bit someone in school, but it was a retaliation bite from another incident at school, right? And when you're the parent of a child that does something wrong, the school scrutinizes you as if you taught your child to be violent and you can do everything right as a parent and your child still might fuck up. And it instantly made me feel sympathy for the parents of every mass shooter, da, 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 da. And so 
in that bit, what I'm essentially doing is going through most of the mass shootings that have happened in this country and looking at how the parents were treated in each mass shooting. And so when we talk about research, I had to go dig in the crates almost 20 years in mass shootings in this country and go, look, the kid, the kid at Virginia Tech, um, the Asian kid who shot up everybody at Virginia Tech uh, 15, 20 years ago, his parents literally did everything they possibly could to keep him out of trouble. They sent him to programs. They sent him to make sure that he was talking to people, psychiatrists, therapists. He was doing all of that shit before he went and killed. So there, there's this, this idea that every kid is hiding guns under the bed and mama don't know is false. So that's the argument I'm trying to make in that bit. It's just about how we can talk about mass shootings, but mass shooting good. Mass shooting bad, gun control, no gun control. Here's the third angle. All right, mass shootings, whatever. But can we stop acting like every single parent is the one who drove the kid to the fucking gunshot? Wow. And that's the angle that I choose to approach mass shootings. Gotcha. And so, but you support that thesis with examples of where parents do. There's a shit ton of parents who are fuck ups. The kid who drove over in Wisconsin and killed two, um, two uh, Black Lives Matter protesters with the AR-15, drove over from Illinois or whatever. His mama was the one that drove him to, this. definitely some fucked up parents. But let's not act like, like, like every single time it's the parent because here's this shooting, the parents were doing this. Here's this shooting, the parents did this. Here. And so there was, there was a fucking, there was a, there was a mass shooter, I think it was in Pittsburgh, it wasn't the synagogue, um, it was a couple of months ago, or, I mean, a couple of years ago, this guy was like fucking 50. He was 46. I think he was 46 when he, um, when he shot everybody. Right. And people were still trying to blame his mom. And I'm like, she's fucking 70, bro. Like she got him to 46. She did her job. You can't like, you can't fucking blame her you can't blame a 70 year old for some shit a 46 year old did mm. that ain't how the game's supposed to go but i don't get that i don't get that punchline unless i go and do all that goddamn research but even still all of that stuff is just a couple of funny quips because you're still dealing with dead bodies you're still saying the word mass shooting which is just a fucking word for people but the barbershop shit is the funniest part of that bit all right. And in my opinion, the barbershop shit doesn't work. So if the barbershop shit don't work, all that parenting shit got to go down to AAA too until we can get a better button on the end of that whole run. So some jokes are great, but they're just not ready or it just doesn't fit. You know, it may be it's the type of joke when there's another mass shooting. That's the joke that I can fucking reassemble real quick and just throw up online from a club set. Not everything's going to be on TV and be polished. Some shit's got to just be some Chappelle 846 <laughs> type mm -hmm. shit. And when but it, I, just, when it I hope that breaks like, down the process a little more, you know, but that's kind of, but that's kind of how I try to construct shit. Oh yeah. I mean, you just put on a, a writing masterclass right there, my friend. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that behind the scenes. That's some, the side of comedy people don't see is we're people just on stage talking and they're like, 
No, I actually wrote like an entire thesis to get five minutes of material. You know, it's like yeah, some parents the do the comedy. right thing and kids still fuck up. Here are the examples, mm-hmm. and you have a punchline to go with fucking each example. But then after that observation, you have to have some sort of solution or conclusion. And the conclusion I have is no longer timely due to the conversation and the zeitgeist. So that joke is fucked. So let's switch gears into just pursuing comedy in general. And um, we've got like uh, five minutes left here. So let's do a rapid fire for some of these questions here. We have about 60 comics watching live, which is great. Um, No, I don't. So, uh, Christian Williams, how did you make the choice to jump into comedy as a full-time career from an occasional hobby? Um, I had an advantage in that I started at 19, so I never knew anything other than being broke. But if you already have an income and rent and bills, it's hard. So figure out a way to monetize on the internet and it's going to be hard to travel. I don't even think comedy clubs are going to be traveling features. And if they are, they're not going to give them hotels anymore. So, you know, that's where networking with other comedians in the area and couch surfing might come into play. Um, But for me, it was easy. I started when I was still in college. So when I came out of college, I just kept doing gigs. Like I never had to make more than 350 a month to cover my expenses until I was like 22 or 23. Um, If you're doing it now, you've got to supplement income. If you're on the road, figure out some day labor, figure out some tip service shit, you know, whatever you can do to stretch a dollar. But I think the smarter way in building an audience, which is ultimately what's going to get you leverage now in the industry, is to figure out ways to do that online that honor your creative sensibilities. Don't become something you aren't just for the sake of building a following. But, you know, just look at it. Uh, Steve Rogers asking, uh, what's your advice for someone who is one late night under their belt and trying to do the next step? Um, oh, that's a whole separate podcast right there. Um, I, the next move would be trying to find representation, but first identify what it is you want to do. More, more often than not, nobody's giving shit to anybody that doesn't have a following or an audience. And if you're just being funny repeatedly at the local level and traveling to do feature work and stuff like that, that's fine. But just I would look at all road comedy as a gym. The concept of grinding for 10 to 15 years and doing late night every year, Sebastian Menescalco style or Jake Johansson. I'm trying to think of some other guys that came up on the road more so than traditional casted sitcom stuff. I think that shit is dead. So if you've already done late night, you're ahead of the curve. So find the festivals from the festivals. You can find representation or you have to figure out creative ways to put your shit online and then that'll bring people to you. Just shoot me a DM or something on that. That's that's a that's a much more. I I have to ask you questions first before I could even answer that question, like squarely. Awesome. Uh, let's see, maybe like two more here. Yeah, keep firing. If it's all comedians, just cut it off. But anybody that's already threw up a question, man, let's answer okay, that cool. shit. All right, yeah, let's run them then. While yeah. the boy is still asleep. He All right. will be up soon. Yeah, I knew you were, knew you were sneaking away from the uh, the child to do this, so I appreciate that. Yeah, at the time, the nap perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Oz Morris, um, how often do you write? And how do you balance writing for daily show versus writing for your stand-up? 
Daily Show is a little easier because you're just addressing one issue and you the depths and layers to which you can explore stuff on stage we don't have the time to do on the daily show like we're working on a piece right now there's school teachers that are making a quarter of a million dollars on youtube doing homeschooling videos for youtube subscribers so there's a lot of school teachers during the pandemic who are making triple what they made in the classroom for half the work and way more appreciation so one of the teachers is like "Fuck it i'm never going back and the other teacher's like, you know what? I'm going to go back because in-person learning is the best. So that's just a conversation between two influencers. And the joke is just treating them like influencers. If I did that on stage, it would be about all of the jobs that became remote and the effects of COVID on traditional employment and how things became remote, which means that's a deep dive into what are all of the fucking jobs that became remote and what were the ripple effects of the quarantine on those forms of employment? So you got to read a Forbes, you got to read a Wall Street Journal, you got to read a New York Times to just see who pivoted and did what and all of that shit, right? So that would be the two different ways that I would have approached that. Like I, if I were doing that teacher bit on stage, it would be part of a bigger conversation. But just for The Daily Show, it's just for that. Yeah. Morgan's asking, uh, Morgan Carroll, how do you vet jokes without a stage? Oof. I haven't. You know, I'll bounce premises off friends, but you ain't got shit till you put it on stage. That's why I think the Zoom stuff, that like I've only done maybe five or six Zoom shows total since April. Stylistically, it doesn't work for me. But I did enjoy hearing laughs and it's at least a com it's at least confirmation that I'm on to something. Um, Twitter, Twitter's a good place to confirm whether or not your joke is clever. Mm-hmm. Like I can reverse engineer a joke through Twitter where I'll have a thought, I think it's clever. And then I'll go on Twitter and search for keywords within that ideology to see if anybody else thought of it. And if somebody else has, normally it's a bunch of people all making the same joke. And then I go, okay, that's not a, that's not a good joke. Cause that's a joke that if you make it on stage, everybody watching is going to be thinking ahead of you and beat you to your own punchline. Doesn't mean it's a bad joke. It just means that becomes part of a premise to something that has to be a little bit more a little bit more depth. Social media lacks depth. The it pedals in generalities, but it's a good place to see whether or not your train of thought is predictable or not. So I'll vet a premise, you know, that way to help me, you know, strike out whether or not it's worth the trouble. Uh, Angel Angel Perez, how do you control your ego? Um, how do you keep yourself grounded? So you can stay objectional and keep your edge. Well, I try not to have an ego. Um, I think you have to have an arrogance about yourself when you go on stage. You have to be arrogant enough to believe that what you have to say is so important that everybody has to shut the fuck up to hear it. There's arrogance in that. But I don't know. I've worked with enough comics who used to have the juice that don't have the juice no more. And not wanting that for myself is more than enough to try and keep me humble because the people that are coming up behind you are the ones that are eventually going to leapfrog you. That's inevitable. You leapfrog and then you get leapfrogged. And the goal for me, at least once 
TV has done fucking with me on camera is to try to create and write content and produce content. And if not that, at least tour. You know, you look at a motherfucker like Sinbad. Sinbad hasn't been, with the exception of the sitcom Rail on Fox, before that, Sinbad wasn't on TV on a regular enough basis. But his entire career, he sells tickets every year as if the motherfucker was on TV yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I, believe, I truly believe a lot of that is from being kind. And of course, being funny, but just never carrying yourself with an air of arrogance. You know, treat other comedians as your peers and not your peons. You'll be all right. Boom. Uh, let's do two more here. Um, this is something a lot of people have been asking. Basically, when it comes to storytelling, how much of a story, like, how do you know when to twist a true story to make it funnier on stage? Like, bouncing truth and funny in a story. Um, I think you tell the story one way true, and then I think you go back through, and then you add details and paint the picture. I was talking with Ali Sadiq about this shit last night. Um, I'll find, I'll find the PDF, but if you think of a story, like read, and this is where reading magazine articles can help, because like those long form magazine articles, like you ever read like a GQ? GQ is really good for this. Playboy too. The first paragraph will just be, I'm, I settled into a West Soho restaurant seat to meet with Jerry Seinfeld. This would be my fourth time talking to him. And I looked out the window and there Seinfeld appeared in a scarf that perfectly matched the seats of the Porsche that he was getting out of. It was double parked. He didn't care. And like, it's all of this shit that's just extemporaneous. But if you're telling that story on stage, the sounds, the smells, the the crunch of the burger, if you're describing food. Jim Gaffigan is a great person to watch when it comes to the descriptiveness of something. And I think in a story, the more you can the more you can describe, the more you're putting into people's heads what is there. And then people are then going to put their own funniest version of what you're saying in their head. So he had a head like a watermelon. Well, was it a vertical watermelon or oval horizontal water? They're going to they're going to do the rest of the heavy lifting for you on that. You know, you can add a lot of craziness, but, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how wild of a story do you want? But I think the fact that the story is true is already real enough and crazy enough. I would recommend watching This Is Not Happening Mm -hmm. streaming on YouTube. Um, I'm trying to think of some good storytellers on that show. Uh, Jim Norton is good. Jim Norton and Ali Sadiq are pretty good. Roseanne had one one season. I don't think it was my season, but she told a good story. Drew Carey too. But it's just, you know, you could say so-and-so I'm from Cleveland. And so I did a show in Cleveland and we were at the club. And the guy comes up versus blah, blah, blah. I'm from Cleveland. Have you ever been to Cleveland? This city, just the smell of it, just the, there's, there's a river that just goes through it. And then there's a guy and it's founded by a guy named fucking John. Like how the fuck did you name city? This dude named John named his own city Cleveland. Like what the, like whatever that, 
whatever that digression is you want to go down, and however far off track you want to go, that's where the places for extra funny are to punch up something that's already true. Love it. And uh, the, the final one here we have from Cameron saying, do you have any idea of what comedy will look like in a year? Everyone's leaving New York and L.A. and it's clear that it's a huge shift in how comics make it. Yeah, I think the concept of just being in the city and waiting for a manager to find you, that's probably gone. But, you know, I hear everybody's going uh, Austin, Nashville, Atlanta. Uh, I'm hearing some Seattle and Denver rumblings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's going to just, you're going to have bustling communities, but no matter where you live, the fight is going to be finding your audience and creating an audience because that's how you're going to tour. It's the only way you're going to tour and make money is if you have people that are excited to come see you. If they're just excited to come see comedy, the booker's going to book somebody regional or you're going to have to drive yourself there and they're not going to pay you dick. To, for you to come and grow your craft. And if you're doing that, which is fine, that's what I did for a damn near decade, you have to figure out other ways to supplement your income. I looked up, I sold merch after shows, I also worked in morning radio. Morning radio paid my bills and gave me a little bit of health care while I was out for four days, $500 minus gas. <laughs> you know, so there's no science to it. Um, I think you're also going to have to figure out places to create more stages for yourself. But I think a lot of these markets, you know, the youngins have already, you know, they're doing that pretty heavy. I'm 41. So when I say young, I mean like 25s and under Mm -hmm. who kind of came up in a different, you know, comedic ecosystem where the indie scene was already established. And so you could do some weird bar show at the end. Like I think David Perdue in Atlanta has like a, a 1 a.m. Yep. It, it's a show that starts at 2 a.m. or some shit. It's the yep. weirdest fucking shit. I, and I show up and it's packed. And I'm like, all right. I guess we're telling jokes at 2 too. in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but that only happens if he pioneered that. Instead of just waiting to do open mic every Monday at the punchline, I sure hope this comedy club chooses me. Mm. Comedy club ain't the gatekeepers. They're just one of many avenues. Don't give them any more fucking leverage than they deserve. But you need a stage time and repetition and an audience. And whoever the fuck will give you that now will happily have you back when you have an audience. All of this bullshit about, well, I'm not going to book you if you work that club across town. Fuck off. Go across town. Build that audience and see if that motherfucker don't call you and go, you should do your night at my club and I'll give you a better cut. Well, do you have any closing advice for comics out there? Some favorite advice you've picked up over the years? I think I've I've given it all. I don't I don't have anything else. Just fucking above all, be nice and collaborate with other people. Don't steal material. And if someone steals your joke don't get into a Facebook argument with them about it. Call them like a fucking man and fucking or, or an adult. Pardon me. Um, and squash that shit. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Cool. Well, the, the final yeah, thing. So we'll stop there. Yeah. Guess do is, uh, would you mind looking into the camera saying your name and why comics should listen to hot breath? 
Um, I'm Roy Virginia. Comics should listen to Hot Breath because it's comics talking about comedy. We're your co-workers, you piece of shit. Fucking let us help. Amen. Well, hot breath first. <laughs> Give it up for Roy Wood Jr., everyone. Thank you, Roy, for coming back on the show, my man. Have a good night out there. Good luck See y'all on the road. Bye, hot breath first. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure he's waking up now. There you have it, hot breath verse. Thanks for hanging out. If you found this episode helpful, don't keep us a secret. We are currently comedy's best kept secret, all right? And we're tired of it. We've been in this game over five years. We've interviewed over 300 comics. It's time for the world to know. So if you found this episode insightful and helpful and entertaining, tell other comedians, tell other comedy fans, Hot Breath exists. And if you want to get more involved in the Hot breath verse, you can go join our Patreon, where we have a lot of exclusive entertainment content we've been creating with Hot Breath members. We also do a monthly contest over there, where the winner gets 100 bucks. But if you want to connect with me directly, you can... Reach out on social media at Joel Byers Comedy or join me every single day live in our free Facebook group. I do a daily writing club over 300 days in a row now. We have been doing a daily writing club called the Write 10 Club where you get a new word and write a new joke. I'd love to connect with you there and help you level up your comedy however I can. But now it is time. We must go. I know, but in the meantime... There's so much other Hot breath averse content out there for you to enjoy and learn from. And I look forward to connecting with you outside of this podcast. So don't forget to tell other people, comedy's best kept secret, no more. And those of you who have listened before, you know I thank my wife at the end of all these. Thank you, honey, for making the theme song of this podcast. And thank you for making me say that. And now, until next Monday... Right here on Hot Breath. breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.